You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. episode 289 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I am currently quarantined in Woodstock, Georgia. Also joining me are two other quarantinees, David Grubbs, who's quarantined in Houston, where he normally still teaches for Houston Baptist University. They've moved your classes online, I assume, David? Yep, in the middle of making that uh, amazing transmogrification right now. Yeah, I'm sure it's going great. Uh, and uh, quarantined in Statham, Georgia, Nathan Gilmore, who is a professor of English at Emanuel College in faraway Franklin Springs. Yes, indeed, a good hour away, and I'm one of those uh, weird humanities professors who enjoys teaching online, so I'm actually kind of enjoying the transition. Nathan is the one who's ruining it for everybody else. (laughs) (laughs) Always look on the bright (laughs) Well, folks, we uh, we talked about this this week, and we've decided to not do a coronavirus episode. We figure everybody <laughs> else is talking about that, so we're not going to. And, and maybe but next week we are doing now, Avengers Endgame. Are, <laughs> it feels it feels very Endgame esque. I have to say. Oh yeah, oh yeah. All these reports of the uh, of the pollution lifting. All I can think of is the dolphins swimming into New York Harbor. Yep. Yep. But we do have some other episodes on the network that are about coronavirus. So Sectarian Review last week put out an emergency episode on coronavirus in higher ed. Uh, The City of Man did a very thoughtful interview, I thought, about pandemics. Um, And then we have an episode coming out tomorrow from Christian Feminist, which has nothing at all to do with the coronavirus. It's about perpetual and felicity to early Christian martyrs. So it does have suffering. That's true. That's true. So uh, if for some reason you have not had enough of coronavirus talk, I know that it's basically all any of us can think about. Uh, those two episodes are probably worth your while. And the uh, if, you're, if you've had enough, uh, maybe listen to the Christian Feminist one uh, that'll be out uh, four days before now when you're listening to this, but tomorrow as we're recording it. So if I said tomorrow, I actually mean last Friday. Right, right. We've also got a couple uh, Christian christian humanist profiles episodes there we go Um, the david zoll one nathan that we have written down here is not going to go up for a while i'm i'm actually not interviewing him until next week so oh okay so uh (laughs) listeners at this point that was a heck of a noise this episode will be uh eight days in your past but uh there's an interview that i did with dan coke uh of the you have permission podcast uh about end times theology and its psychological effects i had a good time 
interviewing Dan. He's he's one of my favorite uh, new podcasters, although he's been at it for about four years. So is he still a new podcaster, Michael? He's new to us. There you go. There you go. That was a great episode. I listened to that the other day, and I, I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you. Well, this week, instead of talking about the coronavirus, we're going to talk about a kind of sad anniversary. On March 20th, 2000, a guy named Gene Eugene died. He was the frontman of the band Adam Again, a kind of, uh, well, they're an alternative Christian rock band, but I would say even more unknown than most of the ones we talk about. Uh, And yet, I think Gene was probably the single most important person for 1990s alternative Christian rock, Um, not so much because of his work with Adam again or the band The Lost Dogs, where he was a member, but uh, because he owned the Green Room Recording Studio, which was really one of two studios where basically every alternative Christian rock album from the 1990s was recorded. Uh, And and so it was in Huntington Beach, California. I believe it was just a ranch-style house that he lived in and turned the rest into a recording studio. Um, One of the great regrets of my life is that I never got to see that studio because when he died, they kept it open for a little while, but it shut down the next year. And I I really date that uh, that death, uh, March 20th, 2000, is the end of what I like about Christian rock. it's not that nobody put out good albums after that, but it, the scene which had co- cohered around that recording studio um, dissipated. And and Gene was only uh, 38 or 39 years old. I'm turning 38 in two weeks, so that kind of uh, kind of odd, uh, kind of disturbing maybe for me. Uh, but he died of an aneurysm very suddenly in the middle of the night, and they found him in the engineer's chair the next morning. And it was a it was a bad day for for those of us who moved in the circles that I moved in. So we're going to talk about an Adam Again album today. Uh, we're going to talk about their third record, Homeboys, which is turning 30 years old this year. So it came out in 1990. Um, they have five albums. This one's square in the middle of them. All their albums sound different. Uh, so we're only talking about Homeboys, but they start as a kind of Talking Heads-esque alternative dance band, and then they eventually evolve into an alternative rock band. And uh, Homeboys is kind of in the middle, I think closer to that funk soul side of what they did than to the alternative rock side, but we'll see what my uh, co-hosts think. I assume neither of you had heard of Gene Eugene except from me? Only from you, Michael. Yeah. Same. But if you've got records that came out on Tooth and Nail, for example, in the latter half of the 1990s. Uh, I would check check their credits. They they were there's a high likelihood that Gene had something to do with them. Uh, really a, a a giant in in that field, and and somebody really beloved by everybody in that field. Um, if you if you read what people have said about him, basically nobody has a bad word to say about him. Um, he may have been difficult, but everybody loved him anyway. Is the uh, is the idea. Well, Nathan, these music episodes wouldn't be complete if I didn't ask you to describe how the album in question sounds. So what do you hear going into Homeboys? Well, first of all, uh, you know, the most recognizable feature uh, is the vocals, but David's going to talk about the vocals here in a bit. So I will turn to the uh, guitar work on the tracks that are recognizably rock and roll tracks. uh, You get a feel uh, from the guitar that's very reminiscent for me. Uh, of the early 90s albums of Alice in Chains, uh, you know, the high distortion, you know, the the sort of bent tone, for lack of a better term. Uh, you also get, I mean, certain passages, especially in the, the track The Fine Line, uh, where, you know, the guitar work sounds a little bit more like Prince 
uh, which was kind of fun. Absolutely. There's a big Prince influence there. Yeah, and also, I mean, you know, that track especially uh, is characterized by the repeated line that, you know, I associate with the Junior Wells tune, Messing with the Kid, but uh, Eric Clapton uh, also picked up from Junior Wells in Forever Man, so that's a lot of fun. Uh, when you're not uh, guitar heavy, uh, you have, among other things, you know, sort of a, a 6-8 uh, rock ballad with Hideaway, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, you get, you know, Occam's Razor, which is a, a very, you know, jazz organ heavy tune along with uh, This Band Is Our House. So like Michael said earlier, it, it doesn't feel like a rock and roll album all the way through, but there are certainly rock tracks. Uh, and, you know, we're going to talk about the particular tracks lyrics going forward, but I do want to say just kind of as a global observation uh, that, you know, the, the songwriting on this album uh, tends to emphasize internal rhyme more than end rhyme, which I found very interesting. Uh, you know, as I listened through, I did find some places with end rhyme, but the ones that my ear picks up on, and listeners will remember if you've listened to these rock episodes, I, uh, when I listen to any kind of modern album with lyrics, it comes across as gibberish to me. Uh, like and until the internet came along, I heard every Aerosmith record as scatting by Steven, Steven Tyler. Uh, so, I mean, uh, you know, uh, so, you know, I had to actually, you know, get on a lyrics website to examine the lyrics. But as far as what my ear picked up, what was interesting, like I said, was that within a phrase, you'll get internal rhyme, but you won't get a whole lot of uh, end of the line rhyme. So uh, that's kind of a, a, a big picture take on it. Uh, you know, David, I mean, were there any sounds that you picked up on that you want to comment on? I like the ones that were a little more, I don't know, I, I don't even know how to describe it, a little more smooth, jazzy, kind of, like, I, I, I don't know if it was organ or guitar that I was hearing. I, There's a Fender Rhodes electric piano that runs throughout the album okay. that I, I, I think might be what you're describing. Yeah. It's not quite an organ, but it's not quite a piano. Yeah, the, the track Save Me especially featured that sound. Uh, and the beginning of Fine Line um, has it. Yeah, of course that's he mentions right, that's right. It. He mentions it in This Band Is Our House. I haven't heard of Fender Rhodes this funky since 1976. I've always loved that line. <laughs> well, I, I was uh, enjoying that sound without uh, quite having the language to uh, describe what it was that I was enjoying. Um, it felt it felt like memories of music that 
wasn't my music, but stuff that I remember hearing when I was a kid. Absolutely. And and that you know I I'm sometimes I am unable to la- uh, unable to actually label what makes me feel nostalgic. This was one of those times. Yeah, there, I think what you're hearing is a, a 1970s soul influence, um, probably most obviously on Save Me, which is not a rock track in, in any way, really. It's just a, it's just a soul track. Yeah. Uh, and, the, and then also the presence of uh, Dan Michaels from the band The Choir plays saxophone yeah. all over this record, and that gives it that jazzy feeling you're hearing. And it, to, to the point where I, I would say a song like Bad News on the Radio is jazz as much as it's anything. Uh, so I, I, it's it's really an odd blend for 1990s rock in general and Christian rock in, in specifically. I, I don't know of another another band that was really doing this sort of thing in 1990. Yeah, that makes good sense. Nathan, you mentioned the guitar work. That's by a guy named Greg Lawless, and you you see him kind of come into his own as a guitarist on this album and especially on the next one called Dig. And and what, what's interesting to me here is that Gene, who's doing the rhythm guitar and the piano, uh, is doing uh, mostly kind of traditional funk and soul stuff. And then on top of that, you get Lawless coming in and playing this, these really chaotic leads. I, I don't know Alice in Chains well, so I can't, I can't say if I agree with you or not that it sounds like Alice in Chains, but it's certainly really, really noisy stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I, I don't play guitar, and I really don't have a vocabulary for it, so I think of it as a wow doo guitar work. wow doo wow doo wow doo wow He's definitely using a... He's using a wah-wah pedal, is, is, the, is what you're responding to. But he's not using a wah-wah pedal the way Prince would have used one, or the way even like somebody like Jeff Beck would have used one. He's, he's like sending noise in and using the wah-wah pedal to make it even noisier. It's a yeah. very distinctive guitar style. And if you like that, you should really pick up Dig, which is their next album. And the one I think most people would say is the best Adam Again album. I don't agree with that. I think their two best songs are on Dig, but I think this is an overall better album. Uh, but yeah, so so you that that's that's what you're responding to here, and 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 then none of us have mentioned uh, the female vocals. Adam again has a male lead vocalist, Gene Eugene, and then his wife, Ricky Michelle, does female vocals. Never a lead song, as far as I can remember, but she's she's her, her uh, a really heavy presence on uh, on a couple of these songs. Right, I think she, she sings on all of them. Yeah, and she's also all over dance around in circles in this band is our house. Yep, that's right. So, that's right. So she's a she's an essential part of the band's sound. They wouldn't be Adam again without her, um, and yet she's never dominant. You mentioned earlier that we're going to talk about Gene's voice, and I'm sorry, I don't normally call people by their first name if I don't know them, but I'm not going to call him Eugene. That's not his last name anyway. Gene Eugene is a stage name. You'll be surprised to learn his real name is Gene Andrusco, uh, which. Probably, you know, you can tell why he would make up a stage name. That's a that's a kind of on rock name. But anyway, uh, let's talk about his voice. It gets compared to Michael Stipe's um, from REM. I, I remember once in high school, I was sitting in my car in the church parking lot listening to Dig, and somebody came up and asked me if it was REM. So I, I, I think that's a fairly a fairly standard comparison. So David, other than Stipean, how would you describe the way that Gene sang? Well, the Stipean bit when I got to Occam's Razor, and uh, he 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 talks about uh, I'll paint you in a corner. Um, I was like, 
losing your religion is that is that what's going on now oh this predates losing my religion i know i know but but like that like that reference <laughs> it's it, it was really it was really funny how that worked out anyway that's that's funny i i had never considered that yeah well you you primed me for it uh the fine line is is one where i was listening especially uh uh, to to the kinds of things that he was doing with his voice, um, a little bit Billy Idol in some bits, uh, though uh, a lot of Genesis, sort of Phil Collins, um, in some places, uh, and even in a few points, Talking Heads, uh, uh, David David Byrne, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And and the band's first album was more or less a Talking Heads album. And okay. and so the the David Byrne thing is kind of working its way out of his voice by here, but it's still in there, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but I think the 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 Phil Collins is probably more something that's dominating, um, a voice that is. Um, it can be brash, but it's it's a little more restrained um he will go for vibrato sometimes but but the, there's there's something more restrained and almost conversational um a good bit of bad news on the radio um feels that way uh but he can do crooning um hideaway is pretty tender and crooning um this band is our house had uh had a few bits that reminded me of depeche mode's your own personal jesus um, but yeah, those, those, those were, those were the kind of, uh, I don't know if so much as, as their verbal echoes, um, but you're, you're getting a sense of, of, uh, what my listening has been, what, what my touchstones are. Who, who am I, who am I missing out on? Nathan? Uh, I, I didn't really do a whole lot of comparative work, but I do think that the, the last track on the album, No Regrets, was probably the best kind of showcase of the vocals. Uh, you know, I mean, in that track, I mean, the, the guitar pretty much responds to the vocal line. Uh, and, you know, I as, as far as being, you know, a track that, you know, really highlights a, a kind of single line of consciousness, you know, through the vocal work, I thought that that was the one that I'd point to. Uh, but I mean, I, I think David's, you know, list of comparisons there actually goes, uh, broader than I would have. Yeah. I, and I, I think that people who say he sounds like Michael Stipe are not listening closely enough. I think his voice is much richer than Stipe's, but I think Stipe is probably the better singer. Although maybe, maybe 20 years on Gene would have, um, been a better singer. It's hard to tell, you know, it, it, cause his, his, his style was evolving so much. And I, I, I think... The, the first two Adam again albums, he doesn't know what he's doing, and he's finally here starting to figure out what sort of vocalist he wants to be. And so you get a range of stuff, but most of it is strong. There's a couple of vocal performances on this record I don't care for, but mostly I think he's I think he's working things out. Um, and in particular, I love the falsetto on uh, Save Me, which uh, he he yeah. never does again, as far as I know. But uh, I think it's a really stellar. Marvin Gaye impression, essentially, even though he doesn't sound like Marvin Gaye on the Marvin Gaye co cover, uh, Inner City Blues. <laughs> right, right. Homeboys is different from other album, other Adam Again albums because of its reliance on narrative storytelling. Uh, his, his lyrics get much more cryptic moving forward. 
And at least on the first side of the album, those stories have to do with Gene's childhood in a particularly rough part of Los Angeles in the 1970s. I, I didn't mention this. He's actually a child actor. There's an episode where of Bewitched where Darren gets turned into a kid and uh, Gene Eugene plays uh, baby Darren, which is which is kind of funny. Weird. But, uh, yeah. All, that aside, it's not like he grew up rich. He grew up, I can't remember the neighborhood, but it was a rough part of Los Angeles. And he was a kind of low-level criminal who uh, became a Christian in prison in 1980. Not prison, jail in 1980. So um, he's got an interesting story. And this, this album brings that out, especially on the, the first side. Nathan, how does he tell the stories, and how successful is he in invoking that time and place? Well, some of these tracks on the first half of the album are more atmospheric than they are narrative, the way that I listen to them. So to start off with, you know, the the Marvin Gaye cover, um, I, I almost call it Youthful Expression, because that's the Tribe Called Quest track that samples that line. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, uh, Inner City Blues, I mean, you know, invokes uh, Vietnam, it invokes police violence, it invokes, you know police violence but there's not necessarily a beginning middle and end to it um likewise with fine line i mean you definitely get a lot of imagery and a lot of atmospheric uh lines and moments uh that point to you know just kind of a a timeless existence of aimless drug use the two that i i really kind of zoomed in on as far as narratives one of them is the the opening track the title track homeboys uh where you got you know sort of this uh, urban childhood uh, that's not by any means sheltered, but certainly it has uh, a certain happy feel to it in the first verse. You know, I mean, there is a sense of community among all of the people there in the neighborhood. They play football. They talk about each other's sisters. They do all of these sorts of things that, you know, I associate with childhood. You know, I mean, my childhood obviously was about 20 years later, but it's still familiar. Uh, but then, in, you know, as the as the song turns the corner, uh, you know, there's a drive-by shooting and, you know, one of the homeboys dies in that shooting. And so it really sets the tone for the rest of the album. I mean, you know, especially this first half, like we were talking about. Uh, in that first part of Homeboys, you know, childhood is the scene, but it ends just utterly abruptly. Uh, so, you know, the, the person in the story, Jerry G, is the one who dies from it. Uh, and, you know, after that, nothing is the same and you know there's not a whole lot of commentary about you know the concrete changes that happen until you get to the other tracks so i mean in in some sense if you think about the first half of the album as a continuous narrative then fine lines aimless drug use the atmospherics of inner city blues uh make a lot more sense to me anyway as you know commentaries about the aftermath of homeboys the other track you, you know nathan before you move on to bad news yeah go ahead is where you're going the thing that kills me about that second verse of Homeboys is how matter-of-fact it is. Like, like he, he barely dwells on it. He just throws out that line, uh, hang your head and, and hide your eyes and watch a thousand cars go by. Yeah, yeah. It, it's so understated. Um, it, I really think that's a, a terrific lyric. The vocal performance isn't my favorite, but it's a terrific lyric. Right, right. Although it is probably the most stipian vocal performance on the yeah, on the album i true. think uh now bad news on the radio uh you know what i jotted in my notes is this is tracy chapman's fast car but in reverse uh here instead of you know being told from the from the perspective of the girlfriend of a deadbeat boyfriend it is told from the perspective of a deadbeat boyfriend who ruins other people's lives
And so, I mean, you know, the two that have, you know, narrative lines inside the track, I'll put it that way, uh, tell stories of, you know, situations that were not ideal, but became suddenly much worse. Uh, and then, you know, like I said, the two atmospheric ones kind of give you a sense of what much worse looks like. Uh, so, Michael, I mean, what, what else is there to say about these? Because you know uh, Gene's biography better than I do. And I don't know that much. He he didn't talk too terribly much about what his childhood was like, other than writing those songs. Um, I will say that I know that both Homeboys and Bad News on the Radio are true stories. Um, and Bad News, I believe, is something that happened in the neighborhood he was living in in the late 80s, uh, as, as opposed to in his childhood. But Homeboys, Jerry G is a real person, and, and I guess was really taken out by a 15-year-old drive-by shooter. Crazy. Indeed. David, anything to add to that? Nope, just sitting here learning. The other major topic of the album is what it's like to be in a sub-mid-level rock band, <laughs> which is not an uncommon topic for a band in the middle of its career, but what, what do you think Adam again adds to that genre? The songs on this album uh, that seem to be most uh, connecting to that, um, This Band Is Our House is the one that's most obvious. Though uh, the last uh, the last one, no regrets, uh, is is certainly within the larger context of the effect of 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 living that that uh, what, what do you call it sub mid level <laughs> um, kind of life and uh, dance around in circles. Well, maybe that's a good place to start. Dance around in circles. Uh, on one hand reminds me of all of the songs that talk about putting your hands in the air and getting out on the dance floor and whatnot. Except this one is also very clearly has its eye on uh, those who are singing this call, who are performing this call, um, who are who are aware that it is a performance and aren't and don't quite feel it. Um, so, uh, hey, everybody, get together. That sounds pretty, that sounds pretty typical. Listen to me and I will hear you, uh, shaded by the same umbrella, smile about the way that we do. All right. So that, that, okay, we've, we've got this pose going on. Um, I can see around the world, dance around circles, every boy and every girl. There's another line, another one of the lines that you expect, hands in the middle, dance around in circles. There's something about this, the going around, dance around in circles, um, holding uh, with, 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 with the reference to hands makes you think about ring around the rosy, calling them boys and girls, um, that, that air of, of kind of juvenile. 
um, but also the idea of going around in circles that this is a, a kind of fruitless endeavor um, and uh, this is uh, I, I guess what I'm trying to see is what what are the what are the undertones here of of feeling as if um, uh, what what you're doing is amusing people who are immature enough or who are too immature to um, appreciate what what might be uh, more soulful, more expressive, uh, more meaningful to you in your art. But instead, um, I'm the one who sings while you dance around. Uh, they seem to expect him to play that funky music till he dies, <laughs> which I guess he kind of did. That's all I could think of when I was listening to this track. Huh. Sorry, keep going, David. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I don't know who the big gorilla is and why you need to feed it. Yeah, I've always wondered that, too. Uh, yeah, who's going to feed our big gorilla? Um, me and you got to stick together. We got to, I got to have you here by my side. Besides, who's going to feed our big gorilla? Okay. Who's going to wipe the tears from our eyes, uh, from your eyes? Um, I don't know what the gorilla is, uh, but the sense of the people of, of full of, is this an address from the band to the dancers, to those who are dancing? Is this a, is this a, an address from one, one person in the band to another person in the band? Like we got to keep doing this or what else are we going to do? I don't know. That's what I've always heard it as, David. I imagine that song is kind of an expression of centrifugal or centripetal, whichever one's the one moving outside uh, force. And the only way to the only way to fight it, the only way to keep the band together, is to spin in the other direction. Centrifugal. Nice. Yeah, I can never remember which one's which. I like. That. And I, I think I think it may help to know that Ricky Michelle was known for dancing at the at their shows. Ah, that would have been really helpful because I. Cause... So, so, so when he says "me and you got to stay together," that's how I read it. Now, I'm also reading that in the context of their divorce a couple of years later, and maybe that's over overly biographical. I don't know, but that's that's how I read that. Okay. Uh, this band is our house. Seems also to be um, is very very clearly about that experience of being in the band. It's like in the title. Um, but the idea of their their group being being home uh, because they're they're all over the place. Um, it's got this uh, recurrent line: "This is where we live." All right, uh, with uh, uh, Ricky Michelle. Is that is that who you said? Uh, uh, she's singing it in the background uh, of much of this song. That kept making me thinking of the B-52s. This is where we live, this is where we live This is where we live, this is where we live Big dog, chase us through the alley
back to Cali. Uh, this idea that they're all over the place and so that their band becomes the place. Um, that they, they are rootless and so they become rooted to one another. Uh, where can we go, we ask ourselves. Where would we not be desperate and cold? Is God giving us something to call home? This is where we live. Um, the group becoming uh, becoming the home. And then you've got that very uh, self-conscious and very uh, jazz ensemble style kind of salute to the different parts, uh, salute to the different instruments um, in the middle. Uh, yeah, that very, very, very much more self-referential. I think more more positive, though there is a kind of uh, there is a kind of desperation in the sense that we have become this to each other because we are denied it in other ways. But still, yeah, but but still appreciative. But um, I mean, I, I think that I, I think this was probably a legitimate accident in the studio. But I think it's interesting that toward the end when they're jamming, he says, uh, bring it down. And then everybody stops and he says, I didn't mean end it. And it, I, I, I like this reading that like they're, they're doing this because they have to do it. It's all they have left. And so he doesn't want it to end. But I, I mean, I assume that's actually, you know, that's a thing that happened in the studio. He told him to bring it down and they thought he meant finish the song. That's great. That's great. Uh, no regrets. Won't talk much about it because I think we're going to come back to that one. Uh, but it is uh, in the context of uh, the choice, uh, what what the choice to to depart and pursue um, this life of going on the road, uh, w what it does when you when you choose when you choose a you unchoose everything else that is not a right um, and that. Uh, that that choice uh, can cause uh, can cause will cause um, a sense of a sense of loss and a sense of of having um, missed or abandoned um, what was left behind and especially if um, enormous success isn't isn't the result of your choice that question of whether or not the sacrifice was worth it um, is inevitably something that will be uh, that, that must be consistently faced um, yeah I get that what what else am I what would I see if I had ever been part of a sub mid level or any level of any kind at all traveling band <laughs> I, I think the key to understanding the way he talks about being in a band is that quote from the Reverend Howard Fenster that opens the record. When you get through this place, it's just a reception room. You hang your hat up, you pull your coat off in the lobby. And I, I think he is treating being in a band, especially this band that never found much success, never had that many fans, um, being in a band as part of the human condition. It's like, it's it's the homo viator thing that we've talked about on this show. The notion that uh, life on earth is just a pilgrimage. And so it makes sense that this band is our house. This constantly moving object is our house. There's no stable place 
uh, to call your home. And again, that's why it's so interesting to me that I believe he lived in the green room. Like his house was his recording studio. It kind of became his life. And maybe that's what killed him. I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a physician. But I, I, I think the way he talks about being a band is the way all Christians might think about their lives. Am I overreading? Yeah. No, I don't think so. The, the, the emphasis on uh, counting the cost, on uh, no one puts their hand to the plow and looks back and is worthy. Um, uh, who, is my, who is my mother, my brother, my sister? Um, the one who's in the band. <laughs> um, all, all of those kinds of uh, gospel calls are there, but implicit in adopting those gospel calls is the the weight of the cost of embracing it. Don't build the tower without counting the cost. But man, this band is our house makes it sound like a lot of fun, doesn't it? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Nathan, what are we leaving out? Oh, I, I, I don't think I have anything material to contribute. Just, uh, remembering several Danny Anderson rants about how much he hates the suffering rock star song. Like the, the, this is the kind of song that he enjoys most ranting about. But it, it's not really a suffering rock star song. It, it's, it's not woe is me. It's just like, this is, this is how it is. Oh, Maybe I don't, he would I don't know. I don't know. Where will we not be desperate and cold? But does the song sound desperate and cold? Well, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. But I mean, I'm, uh, the, the lyrics are there, man. <laughs> you got the big gorilla and dance around in circles, and you got the big dog chasing him through the alley. And uh, in this band is our house. I don't know what sorts of large mammals Gene had come in contact with in 1990, but it is California. That's true. One of the most uh, popular Adam Again songs, at least among fans, because outside the fan community, nobody really knows them. Uh, is the song Hideaway, uh, which is kind of a doomed love song. Uh, Gene didn't write the lyrics. Gene had trouble writing lyrics by all accounts. Um, in fact, two, three of the lyrics on the song aren't written by him. Steve Hindelong of the choir wrote Hideaway. Occam's Razor was written by Terry Taylor of Daniel Amos. And then, of course, Marvin Gaye wrote the lyrics to, uh, to Inner City Blues, which is a cover. Uh, but Hideaway feels autobiographical because his marriage to Ricky Michelle ended just a couple of years after this. Nathan, what do you think of uh, what do you think of Hideaway? What does it have to say about marriage and the other kind of disappointments of adulthood? Well, this is another album where uh, I was surprised when I got the uh, show notes to discover that you know a track that I kind of overlooked was the fan favorite. Uh, this wouldn't have been a track that I, I would have gravitated to. Uh, I think "Save Me" is probably the most interesting track, and I think Occam's Razor has the most uh, interesting narrative at the middle of it. But as far as a, a failed love song, you know, the chorus to this one, I mean, you know, is a, is a persistent uh, sequence of, of turning away imagery. Uh, so, I mean, you know, at, at the core, the part that repeats, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a bodily metaphor. It is, you know, turning away from the lover uh, and, you know, that being a, a sort of end of the story. There's a pair of lines, I don't know how to be near you, baby come close, uh, which, you know, pretty nicely uh you know creates that again not necessarily a narrative but certainly a snapshot of a tension uh that you know it, it's a realization that you know if the distance continues to increase then things will end and yet you know there's no sense that 
uh, stopping the distance will do anything. Uh, so, I mean, you know, for my listening experience, you know, I mean, I read it as a, you know, fairly straightforward, like I said, 6-8, end of the romance kind of a song, and that's kind of where I left it. But, uh, Michael, I mean, you know, you you are part of this fan community you keep mentioning, so uh, why do the fans love it so much? I, I think it probably has less to do with the lyrics and more to do with the sound of the song. It, it The way it kind of starts and stops, that 6-8, rhythm really helps with that it it lurches back and forth um I, I i suspect that most of the love for the song has to do with that rather than any kind of deeper meaning of the lyric although i think it's a good lyric for what it is fair enough fair enough it's not my favorite my favorite is um bad news on the radio which i think is just a masterful song uh, david anything strike you about hideaway i like it and uh, there were parts where I, I kept thinking, uh, I, I kept making me think of uh, language in Psalms and other places about uh, uh, with, with the, the request for the Lord to not turn his face away. Um, that, that, uh, that created an, an impression in me of, of almost a, well, the the, lang- the language of the angel, um, uh, and then I kept thinking of Dante and Beatrice, but also of uh, uh, oh, who am I thinking of? Uh, Persephone. And, and I'll tell you something, David, that you would have no way of knowing, which is that Steve Hindelong's lyrics kind of do that. the The Choir's greatest hits album was called Love Songs and Prayers. Because all of the songs are one of those two things, pretty much. And a lot of times you can't tell which one it is. So I, th- I think you're picking up on something real in that lyric. Okay, good. And then I'm not a crazy person. And no, I'm... no, not at all. I'm more interested in hearing why Nathan likes Occam's Razor so much. That's my least favorite track on the album. it is the ambiguity in it that I was digging because you know when you uh, I mean you know first of all I mean the the sound of that one I kind of dug uh, just because it has that blues harmonica at the end and I really kind of enjoyed that as a change on this album uh, but then I mean the persona in that song is ambiguous enough I mean I, I don't know if they are confessing sins or if the writer is creating a character and that kind of tension drew my interest yeah I've, I've never known what to make of that lyric it's never made a whole lot of sense to me well i mean it's it's the it's the inner monologue of an utter egomaniac and an utter manipulator 
And like I said, I mean, you know, if, if it's a confession of sins, it's interesting on one level. If it's a character they're creating but distancing themselves from, it's interesting on another. So I really kind of dug it. And, you know, um, that that's a Terry Taylor lyric, and he was probably writing it around the time he wrote Calhoun, because that came out just the year after this. Oh, then in and that Cal- case, that, that's a pretty right, good right? through Calhoun line. Is, Calhoun is full of these these portraits of egomaniacal yeah, uh, yeah, powerful men. So yeah, yeah maybe, it's, it's, maybe it's Calhoun the Cliff Notes. Yeah, <laughs> well, <laughs> or a, like a rehearsal for Calhoun. Yeah, there you go. As Calhoun soon as you the said sketchbook. This was Terry Taylor. I thought, okay, that that makes sense. Yeah, I don't know what it has to do with Occam's Razor, the logical device, but well, because it's not really Occam's Razor. That's that's mm-hmm. what makes the song interesting, right? I mean, you know, it, it's not cutting away unnecessary complexity. Except in so far as it's to say, do what I tell you and life will be simpler. I'm going to have to go back and listen to that song again. The album ends uh, right after Occam's Razor with another autobiographical song. This one was written by Gene, uh, No Regrets. I have been listening to Homeboys since I was 16 years old, but I am not sure that a teenager can understand that song. Uh, I always skipped it. Uh, on on my cassette copy of Homeboys when I was in high school. I, I, I think this is an adult song par excellence. It's a solitary part of the Born an actor what a foolish line Uh, David, what is that song about, and how accurate is its mixed portrait of adult life? Mm. Ac- how accurate? Okay, I'm going to have to take that one up later. What's going on? There's uh, three main uh, sections, verses, parts of this song. Uh, the f- In the first section... You have this sort of general setup of regret um, that has to do with memory. I think about you often, but I don't know what to do because I don't have the courage or I don't have the strength to make it up to you. Uh, and then born an actor, what a, but what a foolish line I'm so fond of saying, I have no regrets. But if I could do anything again, anything at all, it would never let time take you so far away. So... Who is this? What is going on? The second section, I think, helps bridge the gap. Uh, I got a picture of you in 62 with a baby on your knee. Uh, Those faces are familiar. They remind me of my loss. Now, who is it? He says at the end, if I could be anyone again anywhere at all, it would be that baby in your arms. So, it's a parent. I imagined a mother, but maybe a father. And Gene was born in 1961, so... Okay. So, so I just figured, based on 
you know, based on when he died and how old he was when you've got, you know, 19... Okay, so that's parent, grand, maybe a grandparent, but probably not a grandparent. Because um, the... I, I, if if you just got if you just had that middle one, that middle section, and lacked the very beginning of the first section and the very end of the last section, you might have this idea that um, this regret comes from me leaving a from you know this the spe the the voice the the persona the uh, leaving the parent choosing this life in which there is a you know some degree of success. I've got a woman who loves me. I've got the pink slip for my car. I've got a little place. The rent is cheap. I have a band who plays my songs. Life's not so hard. If it was just that, um, just that middle section missing the beginning of the first part, the end of the last part, then it, it might be, I chose the rock band life. I left my family behind, um, and I and I regret because I can't go back. Except you do have the beginning and you do have the end. Um, the end is the hardest thing I've learned about my regrets is though I cannot do anything again, anything at all, today I could have. I should have made that call. I should have made that call. And that was the part that hit me. Right? Um, I remember being young and thinking of the tragedy of sort of the endless regret because of because especially of someone dying right and death making that kind of permanent cut and oh the tragedy of that except this isn't that um someone is living and what make what makes the what makes the severance you know the bridge is burning in the rearview mirror but it's not entirely burnt, and he could make the call. He should make the call, but he's a coward. <gasps> and that that kind of regret uh, is the kind that I learned as an adult. Yeah, it's it's a regret. Not so much that you did something or didn't something, didn't do something, but that you became a certain sort of person. Yes. That you've done something, not that can never be undone, but which you, honest, looking in your soul, know that you will almost, that you will probably never undo if you keep being who you are and you don't know how to not be who you are. And so the, the, the cowardice and the weakness are the thing that create the permanence, not something like death. And that, that I think, is, is a much more adult kind of regret. Hmm. God, that was bleak. Save me from myself, somebody. Well, I mean, it's a bleak ending, and, and all the Adam again, so, uh, the last three albums, end on the, this kind of depressing existential note. Uh, you, you've got this one. And then um, uh, Dig ends with the song So Long, which is, which is basically saying I'm about to get divorced. And then the last Adam Again album, Perfecta, ends with a song called Don't Cry about the, the singer going somewhere where the person he's talking to can't follow, which, my God, I mean, becomes chilling when he dies a few years later. You know? Yeah. I, I, 
this is clearly the right way to end this album because it's an album that doesn't take easy answers for anything. Um, but yeah, it's it's bleak and it gets bleaker the more of an adult you become. I, you know, what I like about it is I really hate it when people say things like they don't believe in regrets or whatever because it's, yes. it's so obviously not true. And, and, and he, he's speaking, I, I assume it's him, he's speaking as someone who says that and, and saying he's afraid that people are going to realize he's full of it, which of course he is, because I think everybody who says that is on some level. It's a way of failing to take responsibility for the sort of person you've turned into. Yeah. It, it's the uh, almost, almost the despairing recognition that you actually haven't got it in you to repent or relent. And those are the things that would be necessary. And so right. you almost live with the regret of the loss and focus on that because the tragedy of the regret of the loss has a kind of poignance to it that as soon as the camera turns back to the fact that you can't repent and can't relent, um, that's you can't romanticize that. You know, it's interesting that you brought that up, David, because you, you made me think of the closing track on the 77s self-titled album that we talked about last year, uh, I Could Laugh, which really is kind of a, a twin to this song. I, I think yeah. they're really doing very similar things. <laughs> I think this is a better song than I Could Laugh, but... Mm. Um, huh. Yeah. I, 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 really, I really liked this song. This was one of my, this was one of my favorites uh, on the album. Because that's a very, again, I, I think that's a that's a very grown up, a very grown up kind of thing, um, mm-hmm. recognizing that you actually haven't got it in you to say that you're sorry, um, to to be different in a way that is meaningful. Um, you know, it's it's the opposite of uh, the person who sort of keeps coming back and saying that they'll be different but never is. Um, but in some ways it's bleaker because it's so internalized. If that makes sense. Nathan, what do you think? Uh, I mean, it's, it's a thread that you two have already kind of retraced, but I mean, what struck me about this is, is the progression from, you know, realizing, you know, how stupid it is to say no regrets to the fear of being caught regretting things. Uh, and again, I mean, you know, if, if, if we as human beings, or I guess if I, I shouldn't generalize my experience to all of human beings, uh, if I had the wisdom to pull back and see, you know, broad pictures, uh, then perhaps, you know, the no regrets thing wouldn't be something, you know, to say, but, you know, I think that what comes across is that, uh, this idea that, you know, everything that I've become, I'm happy with, you know, is, is a way to defend yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, you know, this is a song that realizes that, you know, that defense is itself a poison. It's a good song. That does it great. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, it's funny. I hated this song for 15, 
years, 20 years. And then one day I heard it and it's like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> what have I, what, how have I missed this the whole time? And the, and the reason I missed yeah. it is I was too young to appreciate it. Like this is, it, it's an album for adults and it's capped off by a song for adults. Right. Well, like and, I said, until I read the lyrics, I didn't know what he was saying because rock songs sound like gibberish to me. But once I read it, I said, oh man, that is, that's something. Well, what moments or details haven't we talked about that you guys would like our listeners to hear? Uh, you go first, Nathan, and then you can pass it on to David. Well, I've already mentioned both of them because I'm, I'm just terrible at saving my last moments for the last moments. Uh, but the track Save Me is just a fascinating track because the vocals are almost absent. Uh, and instead, you've got this very atmospheric uh, keyboard, keyboard and saxophone sound uh, that I really enjoyed. And then, like I said, you know, as far as a... Uh, that transition that Michael was talking about from narrative into cryptic lyrics, uh, Occam's Razor for me is just a very well-crafted uh, cryptic narrative. So I guess it, it builds that bridge pretty nicely. So uh, those are the two that I was going to talk about, but I've already talked about them. So David, what do you got? And those were the ones that I was going to talk about too. Oh, well. Wow. Say something smarter than what I said then, David. <laughs> Um, y'all, y'all kind of t- hinted hinted back at it before. Um, but I like the the Terry Taylor esque ness of Occam's Razor, um, and that that portrait of uh the 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 kind of abusive reasoner, um, who who takes your uh who takes the 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 whoever it is that they're aiming uh, what they regard as their uh, their their reason their rationality at them um, you know regards them as this uh, that this as this weaker person that they're somehow kind of carving the weakness out of them um, you know I, I I don't think it has anything to do with Occam's razor precisely so much as just the idea that Occam's razor has to do with rationality with reason um and and the idea of of cutting um that uh that if you're if you're resisting or resenting my arguments that this is uh this is a failure on your part um and you... yeah it's a song about the kind of person who'd use the phrase occam's razor on twitter <laughs> <laughs> written long before twitter all right uh, yeah, so I, I I found that one I found that one fascinating. Um, Save me. Uh, I enjoy. You, you talked about how the lyrics are are almost uh, unhearable on Save Me, um, but I just wanted to tip my hat at the lyrics. Um, first, the first three lines: dug too deep to climb out now. Save me, Jesus, save me. The hills too steep keep sliding down. So this. Um, this narrative of uh, inability n- requiring salvation. But then the last bit, a broken heart I'm spilling out. Tr- don't try to catch me. Let me hit the ground. Flow and die. Please don't cry. So that's such an that's such a such a strange and obscure movement from help me save me to to don't save me. Um, I haven't quite figured out what that movement means. <laughs> whether it's a contradiction, whether it's a call for salvation that gives up in the end and decides it's not worth saving, 
um, or if it's the uh, Psalm 51, um, uh, you know, what the, 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 the sacrifices that God asks for is a broken heart. Um, so I, I don't, uh, I, I don't know, but I, I found them intriguing in some of the ways I found other lyrics on the album intriguing. Well, I'm glad you guys liked it. I'm always, uh, I'm always nervous. And it, it occurred me, occurred to me here at the end that I should ask you now that we've done, I don't know, six or seven of these, which of these albums that I've made you listen to have, have been your favorites? And I'm putting you on the spot. You didn't know I was going to ask this. David, you want to go first? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, how about you let me very quickly pull up the list? Yeah. yeah. I can, right, I can I'll, just... I'll go ahead and go first while David's doing that. I mean, just because it was such a a singular sound and because it wasn't really like anything I'd heard in Christian rock, I think the... The uh, Ellis Underground album, The Great Prophet, was probably my favorite. Awesome. Which has just been kickstarted for a release on vinyl. Yeah, and our, our listener, uh, Mark Feldbush, was posting about that. And I said, did you listen to our podcast about that? He said, heck yeah, I did. And then he proceeded to do another post for all of his Facebook people, you know, pitching that episode of ours. So, Mark, if you're listening, thank you. You know, somebody on some Facebook group gave me the ultimate compliment about that episode, which is that if they ever re-release that album, they should release that episode as a commentary track, which oh, I, I, I was really honored by that. Of course, they did not release it as a commentary track, but if uh, Mike Knott's people are listening, hey, there's still time. <laughs> <laughs> nice. David? Um, I remember uh, I remember liking uh, the, the, the Daniel Amos album a lot. Um, uh, I can't remember a whole lot very specific about it, but, uh, I remember, I remember enjoying it, looking back, um, looking back and liking it. Uh, but we've, 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 we've covered so much ground and a lot of them I haven't actually really revisited mainly because I listen to music for different things than, for different reasons than you do, Michael. Sure. Uh, almost everything I listen to doesn't have lyrics because it's something I'm listening to while I'm doing something else that's requiring me to generate words. Yeah, fair enough. And if I'm just sort of listening for entertainment, if I want to listen to words, I listen to books. <laughs> so, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I've enjoyed these even though... Um, I don't know that I've always been super confident about whether or not I was getting things uh, until you gave the nod of approval. <laughs> I'm always just happy to give these guys a wider audience because I, I feel like they're doing such good work and so few people ever hear it and they, they get dismissed along with the likes of, uh, you know, counting, counting uh, what are they called? Casting crowns or whatever other, <laughs> what, what other CCM act here you're talking about it. and obviously what they're doing is so much different than that and yet it gets lumped in so i hope i hope this episode like our other ones uh listeners has has given you somebody new to listen to uh you know adam again's discography is only five albums uh gene also made i think four albums with the supergroup the lost dogs which also features mike rowe and terry taylor uh so really you can you can listen to his entire catalog 
uh, thoroughly in a month, um, and I would recommend doing it. Uh, what are we talking about next week, David? Well, when the next uh, episode drops uh, on March the 31st, it will be uh, within the Anglican Communion, uh, the Feast of John Donne. So wow. uh, I'm looking for something that Dunn done, and we'll do it too. And we've already done the Holy Sonnets, right? Yep. So it'll be something else. Okay. Done did. <laughs> we done did that. Maybe That's done. 1619 writing westward, maybe the litany. Don't know. We'll see. So something with John. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> oh. You guys are worse than the coronavirus. Wow. <laughs> Oof. Well, listeners, uh, you can get in touch with us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Our website is christianhumanist.org. We're on Facebook. Uh, the network, the Christian Humanist Radio Network, has a Twitter account, which is CH Radio Network. Uh, and until next week, this is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore and David Grubb saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. <laughs>